0: If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 7, as that's where we're going to be here today. Um, so I want to start with a, a kind of a quick survey of hands. Raise your hand if you wish that when you woke up in the morning, the desire to exercise was just there. Like you just woke up and you were like, okay, we've got a lot of people who aren't telling the truth here. Um, or you're all really, really lazy and content with how you are. Um, but don't you wish you just wake up in the morning it's like, yes, I can't wait to exercise. You just had the motivation to do it. Like, I know some people are like, I hit the gym twice a day, seven days a week, but maybe I could squeeze another one in there. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the people who are like, exercise, uh, exercise, is gross. Um, but, but, like, don't you wish it was just there? Like, for me, I'm motivated just enough to stay healthy. It's like, I love food. And the more terrible it is for me, the more I love it. Um, But I also want to live long enough, like see my kids get old, grow old with my wife, be around for the the church. So I'm kind of walking that line. Now, I'm never going to be the guy that's motivated, like they live in the gym. Their diet is like fried spinach and protein shakes. And like their whole body is one giant muscle. It's like they don't have a neck because it's just muscle. Like, that lifestyle is a recipe of sadness for me. It's just like, I I want nothing to do with this. But in order to exercise, you need to find motivation to do it, or you're not going to do it. Now, another quick survey of hands. I want you to be honest this time. How many of you wish that when you woke up in the morning, the desire to to love God was just there? That that loving God just came much more easily easily to you, and I'm raising my hand in honesty. This is a safe place, because sometimes it it can be work to love God. Like, we look at some people and we're going, why is their relationship with God so much more vibrant than mine? Why are they so much more passionate than I am in my relationship with God? Why can't I be like that? And we can desire to love God, but just desiring to love God doesn't mean you're going to do it. Like, I know there's some, some Bible nerds in here are gonna be like, well, actually, guys, uh, if you just observe God's commandments, um, you, that's how you love God. And it's like, I agree 100%, that is true. But you still need to find the motivation to love God, to obey those commandments. And so how do we break out of a spiritual staleness or an apathy when we're not motivated? What do you do when your love for, for God has grown lukewarm? Is there a way to make your love for God grow. Now, at the same time, you might be here and that question might not even be a question that you're concerned about. You might've been dragged here by your parents. A friend was like, come on to church with me. It's great. And you're like, I'll go if you stop bugging me. And so you're like, why are you guys so gung ho for God? Why do you guys love Jesus so much? And in Luke chapter 7, which is today's text, he's going to shed light on what motivates a Christian's love for God. And Luke, what he's, he's going to do is he's going to make us do a heart check and see what's going on inside of our hearts to identify what might be going on. So Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so Luke is saying Jesus has been invited to the the home of a, a Pharisee named Simon for Uh, dinner. And if you know Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees, this kind of seems a little odd because they don't tend to be big fans of Jesus. And Luke doesn't tell us why he's been invited. All we can do is kind of speculate as to why Jesus has been invited. So maybe the Pharisee just wants to check Jesus out. Is he really a prophet? Who does Jesus claim to be? What is Jesus' message? Should we believe his message? Is Jesus possibly an ally or maybe he's a threat Should we accept Jesus? Should we reject Jesus? Or should we just ignore him, hoping the problem's gonna go away? Now, whatever Simon's motives in in inviting Jesus over are, Jesus' reception into Simon's home is not a warm one. Like Simon, he, he doesn't greet Jesus with a kiss. He doesn't give him oil for his his head. He doesn't even offer him water to wash his feet, which is kind of like bare minimum um, in in kind of being a hospitable host. And and so Simon's not really too warm to Jesus. Now Luke says an immoral woman makes her way into the dinner. And like we read this and it's like somebody just wandered in off the street, kind of into the dining room. That's kind of weird. That seems weird to us, but it's not actually abnormal. Like we go, we do dinner dinner then we're going to do the show. But for them, it was like, let's go to a show. And it was to go to a dinner. That was kind of the show. And so like meals like this, they're not private. People would come and watch. There's an open door to the street. People will just kind of wander into the dining room or the courtyard. They'll seat themselves around the edge, and they'll listen to the conversation that's going on around the table. Some people will even interject themselves into the conversation. Like, can you imagine? It's like, honey, we're going out for a nice dinner. You get there, you're having a conversation, confessing your love. Um, and then somebody's like, oh, that's beautiful. Just just keep it going. You're, you're making my heart melt. And it's like, this is weird. Why are you listening to our conversation? Now, as Simon would see this woman come in to his home, it's going to make him uncomfortable because she's a well-known sinner. Her sin is public knowledge. And like every commentator says this, she's most likely a prostitute or something along those lines. And so you can imagine the stares that this woman gets as she comes into this religious man's home. Like people know who she is. And so it's kind of like, we know who you are. We know what you do. You're not welcome here. What are you even doing in this place? Now this woman, she seems to have encountered Jesus at some point before this. Maybe she's heard him preach. Maybe she's had a one-on-one conversation with him. But what, what she's learned most likely based off this is that she's, she's learned her sins can be forgiven. She can be freed from her life of shame. And based off of what she's doing here, it's like she feels gratitude towards Jesus and she wants to honor him in some way. And she hears he's dining at Simon the Pharisee's home. This is my opportunity. Now her, her activity, it's focused at Jesus's feet. Now, we might picture this like she's under the dining room table, kind of working, like banging her head at her head every once in a while as she's doing this. That's not how it was. Because when they would eat dinners like this, it was a low table in the center of the room, and people would put their arm on a pillow, and they would kind of recline there. And so you'd lean on your left, and you'd eat at the table, perfect for that after-dinner nap if you just can't stay awake. But, but this is why, like, it's, it's kind of like, here's the hub, and the people are laying out like spokes from a wheel. And so she can be working at Jesus' feet, serving him, and not disturbing what's going on. Now, Simon, when, when, when Jesus came in, should have given Jesus a kiss if he was going to be a good host, a kiss of welcome. But he neglected to do this. But this woman, she's not going to dare kiss Jesus on the face, but she will kiss his feet, his dirty feet. This woman, she would not have come with a basin and water and a towel to wash Jesus' feet because she would have assumed that Simon, being a good host, would have provided all of that. But he didn't provide that minimal gesture of welcome. But she's not going to allow that to prevent her from showing her gratitude to Jesus. And she begins to kiss his dirty feet. But as she's doing this, the tears of gratitude begin to flow, and they fall off her face, and they land on Jesus' feet, and they begin to wash the dust from the road off of his feet. And this is not something that she would plan to do in advance. Like, I'm just, I'm not going to bring water and basin. I'll just cry on Jesus' feet. It's going to be much more effective. Uh, uh, there's less things to carry to the dinner party. It's like, this is just what happens. And then she does something that's pretty scandalous in Jewish culture. She lets down her hair, and she begins to dry Jesus' feet with her hair. Now, for, for like, for we're going, what, what what does that mean? Why is that so scandalous? But, but this was their culture. It was like, for them to do this was considered a erotic or shameful act. I, I don't, like, I don't know what the equivalent is in our, our culture. Like, maybe a woman taking off her top in public. I, I'm not sure. But it's like, this is, this is how big it is. It's pretty shameful for her to do this. And she's, she's kissing Jesus' feet over and over, and she's, putting perfume on it repeatedly. And it's not, it's not ordinary to use perfume on the feet. Usually it was done to the head, but she's, she's probably planned to do this in an act of humility to anoint his feet. Now, she, she didn't, doesn't do this like as an afterthought. Like, I'm gonna go see Jesus. I'll swing by the, the drugstore and I'll, I'll pick up some like Axe body spray. might help, like, shh. I can kiss those a bit more. It doesn't, doesn't smell so bad. It's not cheap perfume that she just grabbed off the shelf. It's, it's from an alabaster jar. And these, these jars were often worn around a woman's neck, and it was a prized possession. Like the, the perfume could cost upwards of a year's worth of labor. Now we have to understand as she does this, this is not an erotic act. She's not flirting with Jesus. This is an act of worship. But can you imagine the look on people's faces as Jesus is is allowing this woman to do this to his feet? And you can assume that most of the people in the room aren't really paying too much uh, attention to the conversation that's taking place. They're just like focused at what's happening at Jesus' feet and some are giving her looks of disgust because they reject this woman's presence. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus embraces her presence. He welcomes her. He doesn't turn her away. And it, it took courage for her to go into this religious man's home. It, it took courage for her to honor Jesus in this way. Now, th- this is kind of something for us who call HCC home. This is a regular place. Like, It takes courage for somebody to come to a church for the first time or the first time in a while. Like for us, we go, this is home, we're a family, everybody must love it here, and, and it's great. But imagine you're coming for the first time, you don't know what to expect, you're coming through these doors. These people could be crazy or weird. Some of you are crazy and weird, let's, let's, let's just be honest. But here's the thing, they, they come. And we're glad if you're, if you're here, if you're checking out our church, if you're exploring who Jesus is, we're glad you're here. You are more than welcome, and we would love to help you along in that journey. And I'm going to help steer you away from the weird or crazy people as much as, as, much as I possibly can. But, but, well, we want you to come back next Sunday. But the Pharisees, they, they have an issue with Jesus. They, they don't really like Jesus because he hangs out with the tax collectors and the sinners, and they're going, if you're going to be a holy person, you need to distance yourself from the sinful people. And like, how much more sinful can you get than a prostitute? And So this is why Simon reasons that Jesus cannot be a prophet. And here's his simple premise. If Jesus is a prophet, he knows people's character. If Jesus knows this, is a, this woman's a sinner, he's not going to have anything to do with her. If if Jesus knew this woman was a prostitute, Simon's going, surely he's going to reject her presence. Surely he's going to send her away and say, do not touch me. And so Simon concludes this. Since Jesus has accepted this woman, he doesn't know her character. Since Jesus doesn't know this woman is is a sinner, he can't be a prophet. And since Jesus isn't a prophet, we don't have to accept him. We don't have to accept his message or his ministry. Now, here's the thing. Simon's logic isn't bad logic, but the problem is he started with a faulty premise. He believed that Jesus would have nothing to do with sinners. Now, in verse 47, though, Jesus goes, I I know this woman's character. What does he say? She has sins. He says, her sins are many He he doesn't lie about it. He doesn't cover it up. And and scripture and Jesus, they don't lie to us and cover up our sin and go, you know what, you're awesome. You're you're amazing. Never change a thing. Just keep doing what you're doing because you're rocking it. That's not what scripture does. It, It calls us what we are. It says, you're sinners. And then it calls us to repentance. And Jesus, he shows Simon, he is a prophet because he goes, I know what's going on in your mind. And he says, with Simon's permission, here's a story I want to share with you, and and here's how the story goes. A moneylender loaned money to two different individuals, neither of which could repay their loan. One had borrowed ten times the amount than the other person, but the moneylender graciously forgave the debt of both men. And Jesus asks, which of the two would love the moneylender more? And Simon's kind of like, obviously, it would be the one who had the larger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. And then in verse 47, he says, a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Now, there's been a lot of misteaching on this verse. Um, There's teaching that will say that um, in order to be forgiven by God, you need to love. That's how people have understood it. It's like, if you love... God will forgive you. But that's not grace. That's works. That's efforts. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of ourselves. So God doesn't forgive us because we've loved. The woman's love is evidence of her forgiveness. It's not the basis for her forgiveness. Her love for Jesus did not earn her forgiveness. It followed her forgiveness. In verse 50, Jesus makes it clear. She's not saved by the fact that she's loved him. She's saved by the fact that she has faith, her faith in him. Her love has come as a result of her forgiveness. Her forgiveness came as a result of her love and her trust and her commitment to him as Lord and Savior, her faith in his his ability to provide salvation and forgiveness of sin. And she can have peace because her many sins have been forgiven so what Jesus is saying is a person who's been forgiven a lot by God is going to love God a lot. I've, uh, I've been at different events and, and such where people will start to share testimonies. I mean, testimonies are, are, are pretty cool. Um, but have you ever heard a testimony where, where somebody, they, they kind of get up and, and say, like, I smoked a pack of cigarettes every day. I was addicted to the scratch tickets. I would start drinking every morning by 7 a.m. I was with a different woman every night. I was in a gang. I was wanted for murder in three different provinces. But then around my ninth birthday at vacation Bible school, God just got his hands on me and pulled me out of that situation. I was saved, praise God. Like, that's that's exaggerating. But there are some stories that's like you hear them and you're like, that is insane. That God brought you out of that. And we go, no wonder you're so in love with God. Look what you've been saved from. Look what you've been forgiven for. And I've been at things, again, where people will share these testimonies, and we hear them and go, man, I got a boring testimony Like, mine's nothing like that. My testimony is kind of like this. It's like, I grew up in a Christian home. I've been going to church my entire life. As a 13-year-old at camp, I I, I understood the gospel. I accepted Jesus into my life, and for the next 20 years, no major stories of rebellion or, or like, anything like that. It's like, here I am. It's like, kind of boring. You're not bringing the house down with that testimony. But here's the thing, I've learned to praise God for my boring testimony because I've seen his providence through it. But here's the danger. We can begin to rationalize, I've only sinned a little. I'm a little sinner. I don't have a lot of need of forgiveness. We can go, that's why my love is only little love. And which of these two people describes you? Are you the cool, calm, collected Pharisee? You've got your life together and you're going like, I don't really need a lot of forgiveness. Or are you like this woman that you go, without Jesus, I would be hopelessly and helplessly lost in my sin. And the answer to the question of how our love for God can grow is not to go out and rack up this list of heinous sins so that grace might abound and our love would follow. Like here's, here's Jesus's point in the story. Those who are forgiven most love most. And so lukewarm love for God is not because you haven't sinned enough. It's that we don't know how much of a sinner we really are. And so the answer for how our love for God can grow, what can motivate that is is, is realizing our great debt. Like Simon thinks of himself as the little sinner. In the story, he's going, I'm the guy that owes the smaller debt. And Simon's never done anything terribly sinful. He's followed God's laws. He's gone beyond. And so Simon thinks about himself. and like, I'm holy. I'm righteous. And when he compares himself to this woman, he's going, man, I'm killing it. He feels pretty good about himself. And like Simon, we can do this. We can go, I'm only a little sinner, especially when I compare to somebody else. We judge sin by human standards. And, And when we do this, some people look so much worse than you or I do. That guy, he drinks too much. That girl, she sleeps around. That guy, an adulterer. That guy, drug addict. That woman, deadbeat mom. We can start labeling people prostitute. We can compare ourselves and we can go extreme and go, at least I'm not Hitler. There's always Hitler. can appeal to him. He's much worse than I am. But in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, it says, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so God sees things differently than we do. He's using a different standard when he judges sin. God judges a person according to the knowledge that they've received. And so to sin against clear knowledge and an informed conscience is a much more grievous sin than to sin in ignorance, although both are sin. God considers the various circumstances that surround kind of the the person, their upbringing, what, what did they know? What led them into this sin? And God's going to judge somebody who was brought up in a godly way but fell into an immoral lifestyle more severely than someone from a pagan country who's never been exposed to the word of God or the gospel. So in reality, we have to realize this, is that we don't know actually, was Jesus saying Simon or the woman was the much worse sinner? I mean, the prostitute, again, It's hard to get much worse than that, but in in his heart, Simon's guilty of pride and self-righteousness, both of which are major sins in God's eyes. And so God, we have to realize that we're not nearly as awesome as we may think we are. That that our, our good works aren't nearly as impressive as we might think they are. Like God's not looking at us going, man, you, you are awesome. Like, just, just keep, keep it up. Like God, again, he looks at us and he calls us as it is. He, he calls us sinners. And to say that we are without sin is a lie. And the more that the, the Holy Spirit opens up our eyes to the holiness of God as revealed in his word, the more we should understand how sinful we really are. And when we do this, the next thing we need to do is that we we need to realize our helplessness to repay the debt that we owe God for our sin. Like when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, what does he say? Forgive us our debts. And so sin is often um, kind of compared to a debt that we owe to God. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. So death here, it means hell. It's separation from God and all of his good gifts. It's the end result of our desire to be the king of our lives, telling God that we, we know better and going, I don't need you in this part of my life. We deserve it. We've usurped God's throne over and over again in our lives. And it's kind of the end result of us directing our lives. There is a consequence for cosmic treason. And many of the world's resources, they're spent on dealing with the effects of sin. We've got some band-aids to things like war and illness and death and depression and crime and poverty, yet in the entirety of human history, we haven't come up with something to deal with the root cause. Those things are always still there. We, we have not found a way to atone for our sin. Now, there are some different religions or philosophies out there that are going to propose some ways that you might be able to work off your sin. And it's usually do enough good works and maybe you'll impress God. But in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, God calls our good deeds filthy rags. I'm not going to tell you what that is talking about there because it's a little too vulgar for Sunday morning. But it's kind of like this. Good deeds is like paint on rotten wood. It pretties it up, but it's not good for the integrity. It does nothing for the integrity. It's like icing on a moldy cake. It doesn't change what's on the inside. And in Jesus' story, he, he, he says this, neither person was able to repay their debt. And there's nothing that we can do to repay our sin debt to God, regardless of how big or small our debt may be. And this is bad news. But Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. But all sin is ultimately committed against God, and so it's only up to God to forgive sin. And in Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven, he's saying, I am God. In making this claim, he's inviting every person to confess their sins to him so that they can be forgiven through his substitutionary work on the cross. And this is the good news of the gospel. Now, I I know some of us here, are, are going like, okay, this is good news, and we're still going, it's good news for the little sinner, for people whose sin's not that bad. But, but we tell ourselves like, man, you don't know my past. You don't know the things I've done. You don't know what I'm doing right now. You don't know my present. And we go, there's no way God would want me, that God would, would accept me if I was to come to him. Matt, pa- <laughs> Matt Chandler is a pastor in Dallas, Texas, and he, he told this story of when he was a college freshman, he, he said that uh, he met a girl in his, his class and she was a 26-year-old single mother who had never gone to church in her life. Um, she was also involved in an affair with a married man, but Matt and his friends began witnessing to her. And Matt had a friend who was, who was leading worship at a church in the area for an event, so he invited her to come along with him. And reluctantly and begrudgingly, she said, yes, yes. And they get there and worship's going great. And Matt's going, okay, this, this is good. It's good. And, and he's got hopes. But then the minister gets up to speak and he says, tonight I want to talk to all of you about sex. And Matt goes, oh no. Any other topic. Any other topic. And the minister, he pulls out a long stem red rose and he goes, isn't this beautiful? Look how beautiful this rose is. Is. Do you see it? And, and then he threw the rose out into the crowd, and he says, I want everyone to pass it around, and, and you, you should feel the petals, and you should smell it, and just enjoy the beauty of the rose. And as the rose is being passed around the room, it's filled with hundreds of people. The minister begins to talk to this crowd of high school students and college students about sex. And essentially, his message is like, you don't want syphilis, do you? It's all fun and games until somebody gets herpes. It's a fear-mongering message. And as the minister is coming to his big point, as he's wrapping up, he goes, where's the rose? Someone bring me the rose. And some high school kid, that like, comes trembling up to the stage and, like, brings the rose, and, and the stem is broken. It's missing petals, and the petals that are left are, like, droopy or, or torn. And the minister, he, he takes the rose, and he he holds it up to the crowd and he goes, who would want this? Who would want this rose? His point was this. Nobody's going to want you if you're damaged goods. You'd be worthless. And Matt talks about holding back his anger and doing everything he could not to shout. Jesus wants it. Jesus wants that rose. This is what the gospel tells us that God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. The gospel says God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So this is how our motivation for God grows, that we realize that Jesus loves us. He has paid our great debt. Tim Keller, he writes the gospel is this, we are more sinful And flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I don't know how you came here today. The world might have written you off as damaged goods, but Jesus wants you. You might have told yourself you're damaged goods and unlovable, but Jesus loves you, regardless of your past or your current state. Jesus will receive you if you come to him. And to every person who trusts in him, he tells them, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. And he freely forgives both the small and large debtors who trust him in faith. And he doesn't stop there. He gives us his Holy Spirit who works in us to make us new. We are no longer his enemies. We have peace with him, but he calls us his child. The answer to the question of how our love for God can grow was found in knowing that we are more loved than we ever imagined. And we've been forgiven far more than we ever knew. If you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior before, or if this is just kind of hitting different, um, you've heard the gospel before, we want to invite you to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior and to hear that your sins are forgiven. And so if you want to do that, you can, you can speak to me. You can speak to Pastor Gray. You can stop at the Welcome Center on your way out and just indicate that on a Connect card. Or if you're joining us online, you can fill out an electronic Connect card. And we would love to guide you through that.